Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Before we get to today's story, we would like to take a moment and honor and recognize the fathers out there. Phil and I know we wouldn't be the men we are today without our dads, and we strive to be like them every day. So to our dads and to dads everywhere, happy Father's Day from the Missing Chapter Podcast. In the book, That's Not in My American History Book, a compilation of little-known events and forgotten heroes by Thomas Ayers, the Unsung Pathfinder article reads, A man has to be spoiling for a fight to ride a horse 2,000 miles through the wilderness just to find one. If he then rides another 3,000 miles to fight in yet another war, he must be James Beckworth. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm here with Blake Smith and Phil Horner. My name is Phil Schaff. Thank you for joining us on the uh, new episode of the Missing Chapter podcast. Now, I got to tell you, this is a complete surprise to us. We just had Mr. Smith come in and say, hey, guess what, guys? I got a story for you. So we decided to to get the microphone out, brew some coffee, and uh, sit down and record because we have no idea, Phil, what this topic is about. Right. And Blake has really become a fan favorite. Um, his episodes are extremely popular. Lost Dutch Diary, Tomb of the Unknown Crossdressers. Uh, we get compliments on his episodes all the time. And when Blake Smith comes into our room and says, Phils, I have a story for you, we get out the mic and we get ready to go. Absolutely. So we, we got a little bit of a Utica Firehouse topped off with a Utica bourbon barrel uh, coffee brewing here today. We poured ourselves a cup and uh, we're going to hand the microphone over to Mr. Blake Smith, everybody. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate that. And I'm enjoying the coffee as well. And the story I'm going to tell today is about a man. His name is James Pearson Beckworth. And James Pearson Beckworth is one of those stories that we get from our book where it says, you know, they tell you this entire story. And at the end of the story, they tell you something, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time. Okay. Sounds good. good. So the end of the story is this man is half African-American and he's half English royalty. And he was um, he was born in um, seventeen ninety eight, and his father was named uh, his name was Beckworth. He was an Englishman, and he made a baby with a slave. And the the slave was born, became James Pearson Beckworth, and he was raised as not as a slave, even though the mother was a slave. He was raised as his father's son, and it's interesting because at some point in James's life, his father fights to get him emancipated even though he was officially a slave of his own father. So he actually belongs to his own father. And so his father, when James is out West, which I'm going to tell you, goes through three separate legal attempts to make James Pearson Beckworth a free man. And he does. So he is emancipated in 1826 and becomes a free man from, so he's half black, he's half white, but he comes from Royal, the man, his father is Sir, English father, Sir Jennings Beckworth. Hmm. And his mother was a slave. Now, it's going to be fairly easy to understand. So if you say 1798 or about 1800, mm-hmm. you'll know each date I give is about how old he is. So you have to add about two years to it. So when yep. I say 1720 or 1826, he's about 28. Okay? Gotcha. So you can Perfect. know about what he is. So as I said, he they called him a mongrel of mixed blood. And um, his, as I said, he, he filed to have this, um, this boy emancipated. By this point, he's 26 years old. Now, as a child, he was raised and he was apprenticed to a blacksmith. 
And so he sent away from his father and he worked for this blacksmith in Virginia, but the man was very mean to him and he treated him badly because he was kind of like treating him like a slave. And so in um, 1822, at the age of 24 years old, he picks up and he moves to what they think is Missouri. And he goes out to lead mines and he works in Missouri for a while. And he um, somehow ends up in New Orleans. Now, don't forget, he's going from Virginia to Missouri by horseback or by walking. And then he ends up in New Orleans and they don't quite describe what he did in New Orleans, but interestingly enough, within two years, he's back in Virginia with his father, big back in the in the town where he grew up in, in Virginia. And this is 1824. So now he's 26 years old. His father is still trying to get him emancipated at this point. And he decides this man has wanderlust. He wants to go and explore. So he signs into a trapping expedition with the Rocky Mountain Fur Trading Company with a guy named General William Ashley. And so they, they agree in Virginia and this group picks up to go out west to fur, to catch, to shoot animals and to trap and to get furs and to bring them back in. And it's called the American Fur Company. And at this point, he becomes a frontiersman, a frontiersman trapper hunter, you would imagine. He is as he's not very famous at all, but he hung out with Jim Bridger, who's one of the most famous mountain men, Jedediah Smith, many of the early explorers. And remember that this is 1824 and Lewis and Clark is like 1807. So it's, it's only 10 years after Lewis and Clark. So basically they're kind of the first people, white mm -hmm. people or white and black people right. going out West and, and bumping into these people. So he just gets started. So he becomes this uh, a mountain man, you know, the typical mountain man. And he's actually involved, this is a historical event, in the 1825 Green River Rendezvous. And the Green River Rendezvous was a famous event where all mountain men came together in Green River in, I think it's in Colorado or Wyoming. And it was like a trading. So all they bring their, their uh, furs in and all the things they brought in, they would trade and sell. And it was also famous for storytelling. Hmm. So the mountain men would sit around and tell these wild yarns about the bear that was 20 feet tall and you know the kind of crazy stories and actually mountain man storytelling is famous for being not true in other words exaggerated <laughs> beyond belief so you're going to find and what's interesting about this man's life is that part of his life was this kind of mountain man exaggeration but it's almost as if he didn't have to exaggerate because it was his life was so interesting anyway wow, but great. when they wrote his book when they a guy wrote his his autobiography kind of a biography his story and a lot of people started questioning some of the stories in it. And there's this funny th story I told Phil before where um, they wrote the book, the autobiography, basically, of, of James Pearson Beckworth. And it's called something else, Mountain Men of the West or something like that. But it's, it's the story of it. And they, there was some question whether some of the stories were untrue. And so the book, apparently the book had come out and all these mountain men, ah, James Beckworth, the biggest liar in the world. No one ever trusted him anyway. And they had the book, but they didn't have access to the book. He said, well, read me something. So this guy reaches and he grab, grabs a Bible. And he flips the Bible open and he flips it open to like the Samson story about, about the foxes or something like that. He starts reading the story to him and they go, there you go. Typical James Beckworth line, <laughs> you know? So it, it turns out that every, this kind of idea of a, of a mountain man telling stories is part of this story. So he goes out there, meets with all these men and tells their stories and stuff. And then in 1828, now he's 30 years old, he is captured by the Crow Indians. And this is kind of the beginning of a major part of his life. In fact, half of the book is about his life with the Crow. The Crow were Indians, and I looked it up. They lived in kind of Wyoming, Montana area. They were big enemies of the Blackfoot, who I actually know a lot about the Blackfeet because they're up in northern Montana, and I've actually kind of studied them a little bit. But it was interesting because they claimed that he was, because of his skin color, because he was half black and half white, he was mistaken as the son of the long-lost chief of the Crow. So the boy was lost as a child. They thought this guy must be him, and they call him Bull's Robe. And they think he's got powers. They think there's something special about him. Now, 
This story that I just told you, some people think that it was a setup, that the mm. Rocky Mountain Fur Company wanted him to be captured and did it on purpose to kind of establish this relationship with the crow and therefore have better fur trading. But it's better than that because he lives with them. Um, he stays with these people for six to eight years with the crow. He marries at least uh, at least 10 different women, and he rose to at least the, the level of war chief, and he fought in many battles. He claimed in his book that he was named chief after the death of the of the chief of their tribe, which is called Arapuish, which means rotten belly. But he claims that after this guy dies, he was named chief of the crow, even though he was this James Beckworth guy from whose dad was a uh, royalty from England. His mom was a slave. So, um, and as well, I let said- me, Let me ask you a quick question, Blake. So initially he was kidnapped, he was captured. This was against his will? Well, that's the, I think so. I, I think it was, but, but then, there, there's some people say it was a story that he did on purpose to get him captured, but it was basically against his, against will. his will. But then he acknowledges it and accepts it. I was and say lives six there. to eight years. I mean, right. then he must. And then goes into battle? And then he's... Oh, he fights with them constantly. Many, many battles against the Blackfeet. Feet Indians, Blackfoot mm -hmm. Indians, and um, and they tell, and he's great fighter too. They, they, famous for his fight, his ability to fight. So, and remember, this is still the 1830s or something like this. So, um, just for example, um, you know, Andrew Jackson is president, kind of mm -hmm. time. All right. So, one interesting thing about him is he he falls after he's got ten wives, but he falls in love with this woman, and her name is Pine Leaf, and he's so smitten by this woman that he courts her, and she rejects him continually. And it turns out that she was a captured Native American from the Gros Ventre tribe, so she wasn't even part of this of the um, of the Crow. Mm -hmm. But he was brought in, and he, he courted her and courted her, and finally she gave in, and he married her and left five weeks later. Oh, so after eight years of living with the Crow, he picks up and that's it. He he gets his wanderlust again. He can't stay, so he picks up and he leaves. And um, interestingly enough, in 1836, it says the, gro the Crow had always um, been at war. There was a decline in beaver pelt demand. And therefore, it just seems to be that this was the time he would just kind of had it with living with these people. And he kind of decided he's going to go back to white man society. So he goes back to St. Louis in 1836 now. He's back to St. Louis. And, and of course, when you say go back to St. Louis, it means he rides a horse, okay, back to St. Louis. And then in 1837, he returns to the Crow tribe, which is very weird to me. He went for a year, goes back to the Crow tribe, and then infects the entire tribe with smallpox. Oh, my gosh. And some of the enemies maintain that he actually did it on purpose, which it doesn't make much sense that he would do it on purpose. Why would he want to infect them? And it was rumor was maintained. And, and Beckworth had some enemies, too. Um, and some people think that, that his enemies maintained this rumor. It probably wasn't true. And some of the people said that, that Beckworth, yeah, he would have smashed skulls, but biological warfare, deaths of children were know, yeah. you know, that he wouldn't have done that. So it probably was not his fault, but, but it was his fault because he did bring it on. And the Crow tribe suffers dramatic um, decline because of this smallpox, which I guess they would have gotten annually, but he certainly helped them. And then <clears throat> by the fall of 1837, now this is Remember, this is 1836. He goes to the St. Louis. He goes to 1837, back to the Crow. And within the fall of the same year, he somehow becomes a member of a guy named General William Gaines' um, group of Missouri mule drivers. And it sounds strange, but muleteer, they called him. And he joins this group of Missouri Army and marches to Florida. From he, He's in Colorado, Wyoming. He somehow ends up in Missouri. He joins this group. He goes to fight in the Seminole Wars in Florida. I know. So he goes in Florida. And I think there's a story I read where they were all horseback guys. And this is an amazing story. They were horseback guys, and they must have loaded and mules. And that was his job. He was driving a mule driver. But they loaded these horses apparently onto a boat. It must have been in the Mississippi River. It must have been. And they were going to float these people over to 
um, fight in, in Florida. So they're in this boat and a storm blows in and bounces the ship around so badly that it kills all the horses on board. So this cavalry arrives with all their horses basically dead. And so they're, they have to, they're, they're basically cavalry people that, that now don't have horses. And apparently they were ordered, I believe to March and there was some question about it, but they, so he ends up fighting in the Seminole Wars against the Native Americans. And he actually came upon something which I've never heard of before. It's called the Dade Massacre and like Dade County in Florida. Mm -hmm. The Dade Massacre, I never heard this before, but he, they came upon, their group came upon 110 U.S. soldiers were killed, all 110 of them by 180 Seminoles. And they think that that was one of the reasons that the Seminole War exploded because American soldiers were killed, large number, 110 slaughtered. So, um, so he goes and he fights there and then somehow ends back up in Missouri or in the Midwest, and then he's able to sign up with another group to go out West and he ends up to go to California. So he goes all from Florida. He ends up in California in 1848, just in time for the gold rush. So the gold rush, 1949ers, right? So in 48, so somehow he gets from the Everglades, they say, to California. No, you're mentioning from Virginia to Missouri, back to Virginia, out West to Florida. 1848, like you said, there, you know, you don't have the paved highways. You don't have any of this stuff, not even remotely close. Yeah, I mean, the ability to, to, move, or to move from one side of the country to the other is difficult by today's standards, you yeah. know, and just to pick up and move. And, and they always say with the Transcontinental Railroad, you have, you know, it, the, the trip from coast to coast goes from six months to six days, you know, which now is like six hours. But my God, if you're on foot. And yeah. horseback? Yeah. And by the way, he's he's just getting started. So he's just, he's got more to come. Okay. So, so he goes over all the way and he ends up um, finding ways across the Sierra Nevadas to get West. And he, he has multiple of them. And one of them is, I'm going to tell you about in a minute, it becomes an extremely important place. It currently has a highway goes through it. The railroad goes through it. It's called Beckworth Pass. So it becomes important. But this is an interesting story, which I found too, as, as we dig down the rabbit hole, we hear more and more stories. Yeah. But Beckworth apparently was in California and he was going on some trail and he came upon something. It was called the Dana Massacre, Massacres or something like that. And he, according to his story, he came upon this house and he went, went to it and he went inside and he found all these people had been killed. And it was like 11 people had been murdered. And he was going to go into this room and he decided not to. And he walked out and the murderers were in the other room. And so he actually, he missed, he almost was killed by the people had gone in the room. The murders would have killed him. And he goes, he leaves, he goes out and he tells everybody about this and they go back and they capture them and they executed, they hanged five out of them. There were wow. 10 people who were killed or sorry, 10 people that were involved in the murder of these 11 people, but they went back and caught him. But they said, had he, had he gone into the, to the room, he almost certainly would have died. So he ends up um, at some point, by the way, before 1848, he goes back to Colorado Um after the Seminole Wars. And then in 1850, he is working for, of all people, John C. Fremont. Now, John C. Fremont ran for president in 1856 as a Republican candidate, and his nickname, the Pathfinder. <laughs> well, John C. Fremont wasn't the Pathfinder. James Beckworth was. Wow. So he was the one. He was hired by, by Fremont, um, who was nicknamed the Pathfinder, to be, basically be his main scout and trailblazer. And it says, James Beckworth in 1850 discovered a pass through the Sierra Nevada mountains that became a major route for treasure seekers during the California gold rush. So he kind of opened the, they said he opened the door. It says here, Beckworth Pass Railroad unlocked the door to California. And of course, that's thousands of people will go to California and make California, California. Right. So here's a man named the Pathfinder who really owes his responsibility to pathfinding to this man who many people don't know about. That's why it's the, the missing chapter. Right. We're going to talk about why maybe his his memory or his story is 
is not known. And there's something to that as well later. So, so it says here he rode 2,000 miles to fight in the Seminole Wars and then 3,000 miles to fight in the next war. It was like he couldn't, couldn't stand it. So he finally, he fights in the, um, the Mexican-American War, involved in it as well. And then he finally um, kind of decides that he, he wants to um, kind of stop this whole thing. So he goes back to Colorado now. So, he, so he's gone Missouri, back home, Missouri, New Orleans, Florida, Colorado, California, and back to Colorado. So he's, you know, he traveled thousands of miles by ho on horseback. There's no trains at this point. Well, by 1866, so he refer returns to Colorado. Now, at the age, it's 1866, and I, sometimes I wonder what happened between the time periods, but now it's 1866, so it's, it's the year after the Civil War. And at the age of 68, he takes up arms for the last time as a member of the Colorado militia. Now, again, this story is great because he joins up with something called the Shivington uh, Volunteer Corps out of militia, the Colorado militia, which I teach in American history. Because Shivington leads one of the worst Indian massacres in the history of America wow. called Shivington Massacre. So here's a man, 66 years oh. old, who has lived eight years with the Crow Indians, fighting other Indians. He did this whole life I just described to you. And now he joins oh, this Colorado militia, and they go in as part of this militia, and they totally massacre this entire village, including, they said, I've read about it, they dashed out the brains of children, you know, oh. stuff like that. It was so bad. And so Beckworth is part of this thing. Well, Beckworth is so angry by this whole act that he quits. He says, I'm not going to do anything anymore. So he rejects the whole idea. He leaves the Shivington group. He leaves the Colorado militia. And he becomes kind of like a trade. He, he has a trading post and he sells stuff and so forth. And remember that the, the Shivington massacre is one of the worst in American history. Two, two to 300 Cheyenne, including men, women, and children were slaughtered. Now, I always tell my kids the story that Shivington was mad, the leader of it, because his family had been killed by Indians. But mm. but didn't mean that you go right massacre an, entire, massacre village, an yeah. entire village okay so he returns to his home near denver and what's interesting is that my sons both live in denver and they live in a place called cherry creek and i of course being a history teacher i always look for history stuff and it turns out right down the road is called four mile house or something like that it's the oldest house in denver and i went in and sure enough that's where james beckworth was stayed for a long period of his life and you can see it from my son's window you're kidding i looked down i took pictures of it of the looking through the water going by and there's this little old kind of silly little nothing village kind of historical site you go and hang and really bad by the way there's a horse and stuff it's kind of cheesy but me and mrs smith we went and walked through it and everything it turns out james beckworth spent a long part of his life with, within you know you can always hit it from a rock from my son's yeah. apartment so it turns out, so we're almost at the end of James Beckworth's life. So he kind of, he re rejects all this kind of thing, goes back. He's just so angry about what had happened to the, to the Cheyenne. And at this point, the Crow, some members of the Crow Indians had realized where he was and they went back to him and they said, bull's robe, you have big power, you have big medicine and our, our Crow Indians are having trouble and we're dying and we're on the decline. Would you come back and lead us? Be our leader. Give us big medicine to revive the Crow Indian tribe. Would you do that for us? And he said, no, no, I can't. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to come with you. And they said, all right, well, if you're not going to revive our Crow Indian tribe, would you please just do one thing for Would you come to a feast? So according to the story, they invited him to a feast and they all hung out and had the feast. And the next day he died. And there's an argument that he may have been poisoned right. by the Native Americans. We're not quite sure, but it seems weird. And and I've read differently. They said the next day in the book I read, and some people say maybe not the next day, but but that he did does die at the age of eight of of sixty six, sixty eight, something like that. And it was interesting that maybe the Native Americans kind of wanted by killing him wanted to kind of maintain that spirit of yeah. James Pearson Beckworth. But as it says at the end of my of the book, it said probably no man ever lived who met more personal adventure involving danger
to his life in America than James Pearson Beckworth. Thanks for listening to and supporting the Missing Chapter podcast. If it sounds like we're having fun and we enjoy bringing you a new episode every week, it's because we are. Not only are we having a good time, but as teachers, producing our own podcast has allowed us to connect with our students like never before. In fact, when people ask us where we got the idea to start our own podcast, we tell them our students. If you're an educator and would like the opportunity to create, produce, and maintain your very own podcast, go to our website, themissingchapterpodcast.com to learn how we can help make that happen for you. Don't be intimidated. It's easy and fun. Go to themissingchapterpodcast.com to schedule an informative and interactive webinar with us today so that you can get started on your own educational podcast for tomorrow. You'll have a great time doing it, and we'll get the opportunity to work with us directly. Your hosts for the Missing Chapter Podcast, Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. You know, Blake, as usual, that was a fantastic story. Um, you know, I, I said during the break, for me and for people, you know, who are familiar with these movies, for me, it was almost a combination of Forrest Gump and the Dustin Hoffman movie, movie A Little Big Man. To think that someone was able to, in 68 years, experience all these major portions of, of American history is just amazing. And um, it certainly leaves us with a lot of questions. Questions I'm not sure if you're able to answer, you know, based on your research, but I'm wondering if our listeners have the same sort of questions. And, and Phil brought up a couple that that yeah. you would, you know, take notes on. All right. So I, I got to know, because as you're talking about the story, I'm going to kind of go back to the beginning of the story when, when, um, when they ask him to be chief. So he obviously knows his background. He knows his bloodline. He knows he's half African-American. He knows he's English royalty. But when they ask him to be chief and he says yes, and he's there for, what, six, eight years, I think you said, does he actually believe he's the chief? I mean, did they convince him to – to kind of take that role and, or is he just kind of saying, this is something I'm going to do before the next thing I, I want to do. You know what I mean? I think the second one, I think that he yeah. doesn't really believe he's chief and he knows who his parents are, you know? Yeah. So, but I think that he, re- he likes the situation he's in. He's got 10 wives, you know, he's greatly respected. They think he's got spiritual power, you know, and he's unique to them. They think he's kind of this long lost son of the chief, which he is. I know he knows he doesn't that person you know, unless he was, something really weird happened. But right. so I think that he didn't believe that, but he, he thought that that was something, I mean, I don't think he didn't, didn't like what he was doing, but I don't think he really thought that he was chief. Although he does claim in his book that once the death of the chief happened, that he was named chief. But I was always wondering about with your name chief, why would you pick up and leave? Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Especially after he married the woman that it seemed like he sincerely loved. Yes. And that, yeah. I, that one never, I never understood that one. So, all right, here's my next question. So eventually he's asked by the crow to come back and be the chief. So why does he not want to return back? Is it just because he's, he's in his sixties now and doesn't want to return back to that, that old lifestyle or. I think so too. And, and remember part of the reason he left the, the crow was that the, the tribe was declining. They were, they were having trouble functioning. They were constantly at war with their enemies and really kind of the, what people don't really realize too is as more and more white people came into the area, it almost encouraged fighting among the Indians. Yeah. So, but he probably thought that he was just tired of it and, and think about him in terms of wanderlust. I mean, he kind of had it, I think. And at this age, 68 years old, it's pretty old for that point too. Oh yeah. To especially for that anything. time period. Yeah. 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 And I, we, we got talking during the break about, about whether or not uh, his death was malicious. And I, I think I'm, I'm kind of in the camp where, uh, I don't think it was malicious because they probably would have asked him to come to the feast first. If that was the original plan to kill him and poison him, wouldn't they have 
asked him, hey, come and have this feast. And that'd be the opportunity to kill him right there and poison him. But they asked him to become chief first. Yes. So I, you know, I don't know what and you guys think. And they still obviously have some respect for him. What would be in it for them for it to be malicious? Yeah, I think they want his spirit right. to, yeah. be, to stay amongst them because, you know, there's certainly belief in the Native American culture of the kind of maintain of spirits and the importance of ancestors who've died and that, that role mm-hmm. they play in terms of maintaining it. And there's a lot of spiritualism. I think that was just, and they, they were desperate. I think they were very desperate at this point and they were looking for anything. And um, so ultimately, I think they just, they thought that that was their last hope. And I just think he was just too old and yeah. kind of tired of it. And remember, he had had all these kind of terrible things happening. And he saw the mistreatment of the Cheyenne, too. So I think he had just kind of like just didn't want to have anything to do with anything. But except just kind of live and mm-hmm. trade. But the interesting thing which we haven't addressed is why wasn't he famous? And mm-hmm. because there are famous Westerners, you know, Jedediah Smith and Pike's Peak and all the different explorers that went west. And he said, why did he kind of, you know, Jim Bridger and they're kind of all these people. In fact, um, um, what's, what is the one where the, the grizzly bear story with Leonardo DiCaprio? Um, oh, Rev, yeah, of Rev, course. Not Revenant. Revenant? When he gets attacked by the yeah, grizzly yes. bear? Well, that, that, that's the story of, of Hugo Glass, of Hugh Glass, excuse me. And Hugh Glass is the famous mountain man of mountain men. And they all hung out. By the way, in that movie, I think they have the, the Green River Rendezvous. I think it's in that movie where they all kind of gather together, these kind of mountain men yep. that work together. And the question is, why would he be not famous? And some people think it may have been because of his skin color, because of the fact that he was half black. Um, they also thought that, remember, they kind of competed to tell bigger stories. And they thought that this, oh, he must be just telling the biggest yeah. story ever. So it's interesting that about 1870, his kind of legend is kind of pushed aside and kind of overtaken by others who are Westerners who had great, exciting, you know, Davy Crockett and Bill, um, not Billy the Kid, but um, Buffalo Bill and kind of yep. Western people. But Jim Beckworth never was that. And we always wondered about that. Some people think maybe because of his race. Um, there could have been a little racism. And also, I think part of it, too, was at one point he was an Indian. And I think there was something to that, you know, in, in Dances with Wolves, where, you know, mm-hmm. what, do you become an Indian? You know, the kind of thing. And that the fact that he at any time kind of uh, felt a strong feeling toward the Indians or, or sympathized with them. Or was that, had you become one? Would he become an Indian? And I think that might have been part of it as well. I, I don't know for certain, but he certainly was um, underappreciated and underrecognized. And you said, at least in one case, his association with Fremont, Fremont, that was very convenient. He just kind of took the, the publicity and the fame. You know, when it by a lot of accounts, maybe it was Beckworth who should have taken that that credit for that finding that pass. Yeah, and if you've been to the Sierra Nevadas, you know that that finding a pass is really important because we know the Donner Party right. didn't find a pass and they all died, and so the he, they talk about almost like he was he turned the key and opened the door to the West, and you know we don't get a lot of credit for that. We give it to John C. Fremont, the pathfinder. Right. Right. You know. Wow. And in many ways, his his life really represents, now that I'm thinking of it too, just the opportunities of the West. I mean, he spent the majority of his life. I mean, he would come back to the West Coast or East Coast rather and, and fight wars, but it was Colorado. It was California. It was he, his life represented a lot of what that area of the country did during that time period and, and new opportunities. Which is almost like why it's a, a Forrest Gump type story because right. it seemed like he was everywhere. Yeah. And was there any resentment? The fact that he walked away and said, I can't, I can't demolish an entire village. I can't mask. Was any resentment as far as the American side? I'm sure there was, but I think that, you know, the militias at that point were kind of like a bunch of guys going, Hey guys, let's get guns, get a horse and go and attack the Indians at this point in the Colorado militia, because it's pretty early. But I, I don't know. I think he just didn't want to take part in any more and kind of 
Because I'm just thinking, is that one of the reasons why he's they kind of quieted his, perhaps, his legacy? Perhaps I think that might have been it. You know, walking away from that and choosing, like you said, choosing mm -hmm. the, the native side. Yeah. yeah. So what would you say is like the overall takeaway of this? If, if you want to tell our listeners, hey, one thing you need to remember about this, one one thing you need to remember about his legacy. Well, I think that we kind of ignore um, certain people in history that need to be pointed out and people that do amazing things that are almost unbelievable. And um, I think that part of it that we learned from this too is that, you know, part of his life is truth, but part of it is a little bit of fiction because of kind of that mountain man thing and that they tended to kind of over-exaggerate. And the book of his life has parts in it that people say, well, that can't be true, you know, because he kind of exaggerated it. But I think that the, the, the main point is, you know, this guy never, ever could stop wandering around. And there was something deep inside him that wanted him to go and adv take adventures and to go places other people had never, ever gone before and then do it again. <laughs> and I don't know. I think that the, the point being that, um, you know, we all kind of want to kind of keep that kind of wanderlust in, inside of us and to explore. And even if it's not taking a riding a horse across something, but you kind of look in deeper into something that you, you never knew about or you didn't want to know about. And that's what we're doing here in Missing Chapter. That's exactly right. Right. And like you said, I mean, bringing light to the James Pearson Beckworths uh, of history that, you know, contributed so much, but whose story never really got told, at least to the full extent. Yeah. And keeping his legacy alive. Well, Blake, thank you so much. And on behalf of the, the Missing Chapter podcast and our listeners, uh, this was phenomenal. Yeah, so always a again. pleasure, Blake. And uh, we look forward to having you on next time. My pleasure and look forward to doing it again. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Shaw. I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Blake Smith, and another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.